0: We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids.
1: I am Julia Pluge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher
2: with the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. Leaves are turning, days are getting shorter, and pumpkin spice is in the air. I'm not a big pumpkin spice gal, but I'm like here for the pumpkin spice season. I'm here for the culture, for the leggings, for the baggy sweaters. So football has taken over the weekends, and um, some hunting as well, and flannel, crappie fishing, and even some wild edibles. Fall brings so many wonders, including persimmons, wild onions, and even black walnuts. So as you guessed it, today we're going to be talking about fall foraging.
1: So we are so excited to have back with us Miss Chelsea, and she's going to be talking about fall foraging. Um, As many of you hopefully have listened to our spring foraging session Chelsea's a naturalist with Mitchell County Conservation Board. I've talked about this many times, but here in Iowa, we are so lucky to have a county conservation board in each county. So 99 counties, 99 county conservation boards. And the county conservation boards really focus on acquiring, developing and maintaining park recreation areas, forests, wildlife, and other conservation areas. With the 99 counties, each landscape looks different, so their focus is a little different. With only 3% public land, we are just so lucky here in our state to have stewards of the land in each county on the ground just doing great work. So Chelsea's mentioned before, she lives up in uh, God's country there on the uh, Minnesota border with her husband Bill and their little girl Wren. Uh, it's so exciting to see how Wren's growing. Kinda, we have two little ones about the same age, so it's fun to see how Wren's doing compared to how Libby's doing. Um, but as as she's talked before, loves hunting, fishing, trapping, and just getting outdoors. We are so excited to just again, scratch the surface of Chelsea's brain when it comes to wild edibles. It's just amazing to hear the knowledge that she has and just the excitement she has with it. So without further ado, just wanted to welcome Chelsea. Awesome. I'm super excited to be back. I was. I had such a great time last time.
3: So it was I was hoping I would get invited back. am happy to be here. We always love having you
2: hang out with us, Chelsea. Um, as Julia says, sometimes we're really excited to poke your brain. So Chelsea, like Rachel said, you had joined us last spring to talk about spring foraging. So I think maybe before we get started on today's topic, for those of us who weren't able to tune in on that episode, will you remind our guests about your background and how you got into wild edibles
3: and outdoor activities in the first place? I feel like we are all born foragers. I mean, Especially like Rachel said, we have uh, two toddlers now and constantly, what are they putting in their mouth? And that's really how we all start learning about the natural world by exploring and putting things in our mouths. Somewhere along the way, we learn about, you know, there are a few things we have to be careful of or aware of in nature, especially uh, when it comes to the edible side of things. Delving into wild edibles is really kind of a rediscovery of the ancient foods that built us as a species. And so I grew up on a farm. Um, I was the only child. And so nature was my, was my playmate, was my escape, was my, was my everything. I remember growing up picking, you know, black raspberries in the spring. And, and I literally, I told this this story this weekend um, at an event I'll talk about in a little bit, but uh, I literally sat in our driveway of the field with a shotgun protecting our asparagus patch from somebody uh, coming and stealing just the tops. And so Um, It just was something that was familiar to me as far as berries and and asparagus and maybe a a mushroom or two in the spring. It really started to develop when I knew I wanted to be in this field, when I knew I wanted to be in natural resources and in particular education, the uh, interpretation side. And I think my, I joke with people, my gateway plants, I guess, was actually stinging metals. And we were joking about that before. Um, and we talked about that in the, in the spring class that just, you know, the fact that you could eat itchweed, it was like a light bulb went off and my life is now forever changed, um. Wild edible and for edibles and foraging is my profession and my passion, as well as my family. I get our daughter out there; she was picking, helping us pick wild cherries uh, about a month and a half ago. And my husband is right there with us, learning new things and flavors and stuff that I would I wouldn't think to put together. And so it's really a fun way of life, a fun hobby, but always something new to learn.
0: I'm stuck on this envisioning. I'm envisioning you sitting there as a young girl with a shotgun in hand, hovering over that asparagus patch. And it's worth it. Like I, I would do it. I'd send my daughter to do it, to sit there with a shotgun and protect. I mean, who steals just the head one, but who steals a, somebody's asparagus patch? Well, that was, downright needed the shotgun.
3: Exactly. And it was on our side of the fence. So right, that was another thing Of t- Technically it was on our property and they were just stealing the tops, So what I'm going to go protect that asparagus. <laughs> and was it, I mean,
0: was it a wild patch, I assume?
3: Uh, I grew up on a century farm. And so it okay. was a patch that I know was probably planted by birds carrying off berries from the patch up by the old farmhouse, but it had been there for over a hundred years. And so the asparagus oh. was like, you know the size of a fifty cent piece, round and very old. Pat, I'm pretty sure I gave this old man that pulled up with a heart attack, but I was, he never came back. So you know what?
0: <laughs> that deserves some jail time, right there. Jail time. Good. Good for you. <laughs> I love it. I had a sidetrack there. I'm like, I was, my brain was totally focused on that moment. I, you know, back in the in the intro, we mentioned black walnuts and wild onions and a couple other wild edibles. And I think this time of year, we only have maybe in our mind that this the harvest is that's going on in the field by the combines. And and perhaps we forget about what could be even in our own ditches. Chelsea, what's some other wild edibles that our listeners can, can look for right now?
3: So I have been uh, teaching wild edibles for over 11 years, and I haven't lost student yet and i'm still here so it is it is something that uh especially this time of year during you know quote unquote harvest season it truly is a season of plenty it truly is a season of of harvest and that goes for our um our farm ground and as well as our wild spaces believe it or not uh, most people are familiar with you know spring foraging perhaps getting morels pheasant backs spring turkeys, and maybe a few greens or flowers here or there, violets and dandelions. But fall truly is mushroom time. And and I would say the last of our summer fruits and nuts as well. And so you can go out um, along any edge of a semi-wild area or fence line and find quite a bit of food. And that, I think fall foraging is much more efficient as well, because if you found, you know, even just one puffball, that's a huge amount of food for only picking and bending over once. So it really is a time of plenty. Um, so I would add to the list that um, yes, walnuts, acorns are um, dropping right now down there in the south. You all have beautiful pawpaws and persimmons that I don't get. Uh, I can only dream of, and and I keep trying to figure out how I could grow. persimmon or a pawpaw tree on the south side of my house if I insulated it with straw over the winter or even put a little heater over it or something. But
0: Chelsea can you tell us what a persimmon is?
3: Yeah so persimmon is a um, fruit from a tree and a lot of times you might be if anybody's familiar with it at all it might be the Asian variety from uh, a grocery store and it's got a very very hard four pointed kind of people and stem on top but it's usually an orangish color and the varieties from the, the Asian varieties from the store typically are not at peak ripeness and so many people have this kind of like very sour stringent relationship with what persimmon tastes like but our native persimmons are not like that at all they they're smaller they're probably about the size of a and a little bit bigger than a ping pong ball Um, and the ones that fall and drop onto the ground are the best ones to find and collect a little bit wrinkly kind of kind of mushy almost feel like a very soft date perhaps and the flavor is sweet and delicious and it's almost like it's already made its own kind of applesauce or pudding like texture fig newton kind of chewy flavor um just from the the fruit that's Ripe off of the tree.
0: Would it be fair to say that it almost kind of looks like a orange tomato? Yeah. On the outside? Okay. Uh,
3: You know, for just kind of a quick comparison to Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Well, Chelsea, you got to tell us about pawpaws too. A lot of people don't know about pawpaws.
3: pawpaws, The magical fruit. They are um, the North America's largest fruit and they have a flavor that is going to take you to the tropics. I mean, they taste like mango. They taste like a little bit of banana and they're in the family of like custard fruits. And so they have these, um, kind of a, a thicker skin. Um, and then these big seeds that are pretty easy to peel out, but kind of like the texture of a mango is really soft. You can just scoop out that fruit and eat it. And it's already, it's already soft, like a custard when you, they kind of look like a Mm, you want them kind of to look like a banana, an overripe banana when they're ready. The furthest north they come in Iowa is maybe like the Dubuque area, just a little bit, maybe highway 30, I would say. Um, But yeah, they don't transport well, which is why they haven't really become a commercialized fruit, uh, even though the flavor is incredible, just because they brew so easily the best fruit that I can compare them to is a mango with their texture and their flavor. So
2: Chelsea, another really interesting thing I'm thinking about this conversation is for our listeners that are going to be going out this fall, um, potentially hunting or just wanting to do some wildlife watching, kind of understanding these wild edibles and where you might find some of these is going to help you also track down the critters who are taking advantage of this bountiful time of year as well. So kind of a cool aside, you know, whether you're eating them yourself or just trying to catch a glimpse of some of the critters that are. It's a really exciting topic.
3: Absolutely. And foraging for wild edible plants and mushrooms is absolutely a sister activity to any outdoors recreation you might be doing. So whether you're a bird watcher or a fat tire biker or a slack liner or a hiker or a fisher or a hunter, uh, you can find and uh, look for wild edibles no matter what you're doing. Uh, It's especially nice accompaniment to hunting and fishing because if you um, don't harvest an animal or, or catch a fish, you can go home with something to eat. And often the wild foods that are ripe during our times of harvest uh, pair very beautifully with whatever game or fish that you might be catching at the time. If you're, you know, know that there's a pawpaw paw tree or know that there's a persimmon tree, those things are delicious for us and for lots of other critters. So if you're squirrel hunting or deer hunting, they're going to go where the food is. And so it kind of becomes almost a a natural food plot Um, to to be able to hunt around.
1: Now, Chelsea, another way you could get your pawpaw fix could be through some craft beer. I know that it is often used in kind of a wheat beer or like a English style pale ale. Um, So there is a way we might be able to transport some pawpaw flavor up north.
3: I am all for that. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: (laughs) You had me at beer. (laughs)
2: No, I need we need to partner with a brewery and do like a she
3: goes outdoors brew. How cool would that be? Um, We
0: actually have a
3: a local brewery that is incorporating some wild foods into their brews. Um, so the head brewer has messaged me and being and asked, like, "What's, what's going on right now and what could I what would be good for making a beer. My husband actually is a brewer, so I can kind of pick his brain as far as knowing what flavors and and things might be a good combination with the brewing process. Uh, But I love sour beers and sour beers lend themselves really well to to all sorts of wild ingredients, both, you know, your natural go-tos like fruits, but also some of the herbal flavors as well.
0: Anna, Rachel, I think we found our brewing partner right here. Oh
2: yeah. Let's get it started. That's so fun. I love all the applications of this. I never would have thought of that.
0: And then on the side, we have security boards so that you have your game meets on it. And then, oh boy.
3: My husband and I kind of connected talking about wild beer because I was really afraid to tell him about this hobby of mine on our first date. And then finally I did. And he's like, oh, well, I made a Bill's backyard brew out of all the things I found in the yard. And it was fate. So Perfect.
0: love it first. Love it first <laughs> forage.
3: Oh, perfect.
2: <laughs> so, Chelsea, do you let's talk about that a little bit? Do you feel like there's um,
3: some sort of like stigma around wild foraging? I think there has been. I think that stigma is changing. Um, I truly believe with um, with the COVID epidemic that people have been and continue to turn to nature um as a safe place uh, physically and spiritually in this you know in these trying times that we've been going through and and i think that sort of also promoted a resurgence into self-sufficiency and learning about where our food comes from and wanting to wanting to have our own local healthy Foods. So gardening, I mean, you could not buy seeds this spring. You still can't find canning lids um, because people just have rediscovered the value in, in this kind of self-sufficient way of life. And so I think there used to be that stigma of, oh, that's the hippie down the road that's, you know, eating bark off the trees and things like that. And, and it's now become Okay, uh, I was at a fancy restaurant and they were using these, you know, the new hip ingredients and flavors are wild ones. And so um, it's, it's sort of like a kind of like fancy gourmet to, to get into this world. Or with the self-sufficiency side, like learning how to make your own vinegars and brewing Um, And just discovering this world of flavors that our bodies, our DNA know, because it's again, how we were formed as as a species by wild foods, but also, you know, the health benefits and everything else that go along with it um, of just being outside, but our, our wild foods are incredible resources. And so I think people are seeing the value in it now. <laughs> I mean, just even talking with you ladies, it's, it's curiosity. And so what does that taste like? Or I can't imagine eating stinging nettles and just wanting to satisfy that curiosity. And plus, um, you know, you have the the one person, the one friend or whatever that may be interested and they're the dragger. And so they're bringing in everybody else that may think they're completely nuts, but, they end up being converts as well.
1: But to your point, first off, if the bark happens to be shag bark hickory and you're making a drink out of it, I'm in first off. Secondly, by bringing in these maybe foreign, foreign flavors, maybe foreign thoughts into normalcy of a beer, of food, of, of something that we, we know, and you can kind of bring those flavors in. It takes out a lot of that stigma, I think, too, that oh, well, you're making a pasta dish, but it just happens to have all these foraged greens or foraged, you know, pine nuts, whatever it might be. Um, I think also uh, makes people a little more open to trying, which which is awesome. And then my third point, and then I'll get off my soapbox, is a lot of A lot, especially in the cities and in our towns, we have a lot of people that are in food deserts. And once you start walking and realize that you could eat dandelion greens, you can eat all of these different weeds or and uh, you know, pests um, that are, they're that growing up all over the the city. It, it is, it does kind of open up um, a lot of people to some nutrients that they might not be getting elsewhere. Um, now, granted, you have chemicals, you have dogs, you have other outside, outside, you know, influences that could change the nutrients of that um that green or whatever, but just, just does open it up to, uh, to others that might think that you can only go foraging out in the woods.
3: Absolutely. And I try to encourage that in my classes. Do my husband and I and my family eat wild foods only? Absolutely not. Do But we do try to incorporate them into familiar things, especially when I'm presenting to somebody that maybe just be start getting started in the idea of foraging, like Taking something very familiar like a pasta or or a a soda. I know. I think I had some. I let Rachel have some of the shag bark hickory drink that she was mentioning. Starting with the familiar and replacing a few ingredients, and I often tell people the diversity of things that you can actually harvest and that are edible. When you go further and deeper into the wild, it actually goes down. So edges um, are amazing places to find the most things to eat and it could be yeah the edge of a woodland or the edge of a park butted up against a mowed yard but you don't have to go out in, you know out in the bush to find amazing things that there's literally food growing in the cracks of sidewalks in the inner cities life finds a way and often that life is edible. It's it's truly incredible to see what's out there waiting for us.
2: Life finds a way and life is often edible. I love it. I want it on a t-shirt.
1: Uh, Chelsea, you mentioned kind of the beginning talking about fall is time for mushrooms. Um, can you talk a little bit about what people can find? I, I think you mentioned puffballs and and they look amazing, but what are you looking for? And, and maybe what are some other uh, mushrooms this time of year?
3: There are an incredible i find mushrooms fascinating um they're beautiful they're weird grow in interesting places and ways and so i love finding fungi of any kind whether they're edible or not they're an incredible being and and have so much to teach us um but in the fall there are some really great edibles and also those in particular are fairly um safe and easy to identify especially for beginners Um, Because we do want to exercise caution, if with anything um, we may be consuming from the wild, being 100% sure of what they are, but mushrooms um, do require sort of a a little bit finer set of skills for identification, Um, being very careful to note different features of those, those fungus, Um, but puffballs can't really be mistaken for anything else, especially the giant puffballs. I mean, it literally looks like volleyballs out in the yard and they will be growing just in your backyard. In a mowed grassy spot they don't have to be out in the woods necessarily large white you know the size of a volleyball at the smallest and then they increase from size from there and very minimal preparation as long as if you slice into it there's no evidence of any kind of stem or gills or any structure on the inside it should kind of look like angel food cake as long as there's no color in there that would indicate that the spores are starting to develop and then can cause some gastric upset which nobody wants Um, Yeah, pure weight inside, peel off the skin. And it's um, often referred to as the tofu of the mushroom world, which I kind of like and kind of don't like that description. It definitely has a flavor and I like tofu. um, So I'm not knocking that. It definitely has a flavor, but I think it's more referring to its versatility as far as how you can cook it. You can fry it, you can dry it, you can powder it, you can smash it down and use it like a crust, especially people that are avoiding any kind of grains or, you know, in a keto situation. So puff balls would be an amazing one to try to find and they grow pretty much everywhere. Chicken of the woods, it goes against our natural instinct to avoid things that are like fluorescent and brightly colored as a warning color, but they are literally like construction blaze orange. There are two different varieties. One is a little bit softer in coloration. It's kind of more of a peachy with a white underside, but the more common one is fluorescent orange with bright yellow edges and undersides growing on um, either injured portions of trees or dead, dead hardwoods. Um, the only really thing that it can be confused for be a jack o' lantern, but they grow. Um, they're 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 not a shelf like a chicken of the woods. They are kind of a you know stalk with a cap and has gills underneath. But that orange color, if you would be walking through the woods and seeing it, that would be um, something that you may need to watch out for. Also, if it was growing on a hemlock tree, uh, I would avoid eating the chicken of the woods. But otherwise, pretty recognizable. Hard to confuse for anything else and absolutely delicious because it literally has the texture of like a chicken breast so anybody that's wanting to um, use more uh, mushroom or vegetative things in replacement of meat that's a great option um, it's also a great option accompanying anything too uh, hen of the woods uh, or maitake is out right now grows at the base of, of oak trees and kind of a clustered little shelves. There's no gills or anything underneath. Um, There's a few that it could be confused for, but nothing um, particularly of concern, Uh, but it does look like a little brown hen with her feathers all ruffled up underneath at the base of an oak tree. Chanterelles are just kind of finishing up, and there are a couple others, but those three are going to be pretty ubiquitous as far as where they grow, um, as far as Midwest-wise, um, pretty recognizable. And you, these things are weighing, you know, a couple pounds each. So like I said, that's a lot of food for one harvest.
0: This sounds also delicious. I, I'm i just amazed by your wealth of knowledge. And I mean, I, I feel like you could just go on and on about mushrooms alone. So this is, this is so cool. But you know, I am one that I am just getting used to even just finding morels in the spring. So while you're just a wealth of knowledge, there's a lot of beginners like me too. And and that's why we have Chelsea here too today is to talk about and, and to educate us. And so those of us that are new to hunting mushrooms or not even familiar with the landscape as to where to go, what are your suggestions for those of us that are heading out for the first time?
3: We are on this podcast kind of celebrating public wild spaces and do check with your local ordinances and, and regulations, but for the most general rule that I could say, mushrooms, nuts, berries are typically allowed collectible items from public spaces. Every, every place, is managed differently. So do check in with land managers and see how those spaces regard any kind of foraging or collecting. But generally, those are okay things to start with. For beginners, uh, if you can get on in in person with a forager, there's often um, like foraging groups on Facebook. Those are the best ways to learn because you're physically seeing what the plant or the mushroom, and you can hold it in your hands and you can smell it. And it's just a very immersive experience to be in person with somebody. Get yourself some good books, attend uh, some of the webinars that I've been doing with Rachel and Iowa DNR, um, attend an event. I was just uh, teaching, I had three classes at the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival this weekend, or this past weekend held in Wisconsin. It's typically the fourth weekend or the last weekend of September. Um, it was completely filled up this year, like right away. <laughs> so uh, get on the list early as soon as registration um, comes out. Amazing, amazing, incredible, so knowledgeable and passionate instructors that you, you're you not going to find anywhere else. Take a friend with you, attend a class, um, attend a webinar, get some good guides. And I say guides because then you're not just taking one person's word for it. Um, I do have some little small handouts that I've created for my classes, um, which I'm happy to share with anybody. I recommend starting with plant identification before moving on to mushroom identification and start small. So pick maybe five plants and you're going to learn those plants this year and you're going to learn them, not just to identify, but you're going to learn to know those plants. And so you're gonna know what it looks like as it first comes up in the spring as it's growing, is it a one year or a two year plant? What does the flower look like? What does the fruit or the seed look like? What does it look like after frost? Who else likes to grow by it? What area does it typically like to grow in? And so then you're gonna have those five plants absolutely memorized by heart. And then the skills you gain by recognizing and knowing those plants will help you expand to maybe you can do eight plants the next year and then it just grows exponentially from there. And this, the attention to detail in identifying the plants will help you move on to positively and confidently identifying mushrooms.
1: And you bring up such a good point that, you know, getting a couple different guides, we've talked on our, on our webinars a bunch about, like, Mike Krebels. Uh, Scout's Guide to Wild Edibles. We've talked about vast variety of different uh, guides, whether it be Midwest specific, whether it be Iowa or Nebraska, Kansas specific, our terrains are, are pretty similar. So, you know, a lot of the guides will cover more than just your specific ground, wherever you live in the Midwest, but, but just, you know, each artist draws or takes a picture differently. So, so there are different, different views of, of the same plant shown differently. And and you've, you've mentioned that, you know, you were struggling trying to ID one based on one book and then like flip the page and there it was in the other book and, and how it was found in the first book was just a little different than how you found it. And so it's it's nice to hear for those of us that are still getting into it that a seasoned harvester sometimes struggles to figure out what they're what they're identifying also.
3: Always something new to learn. I'm just further down in my learning journey than some people. I'm always learning. That's the beauty of of exploring the outdoors, exploring nature cuz There's always something new to learn. I do recommend, and I know there's some controversy with this idea, especially when we're thinking about ethics of foraging and only, you know, taking what is okay for that particular population of mushroom or plant. So one third is a good rule. One third for you, one third for wildlife, one third for reproduction of that plant. But as you're learning, I encourage my students to Yes, take pictures of whatever you're trying to identify in the field, but take a a specimen back with, press it in the folds of your book that you might have with you or your notebook. Because until you know what it is, you might not know that you should have taken a picture of this particular structure. Um, You might have found it when it's not in flower and and your app or whatever on your your phone doesn't recognize it um, without the flower. And so then that brings up another point I do for beginners. I don't mind people using like a plant ID app because it'll start getting you on the right track, but it's, it's very akin to what we call a brag and drag where, okay, I'm going to take you on a walk and tell you all the names of the things that I know, but it doesn't teach you how to know. It just spits out an answer and doesn't give you any kind of relationship with that plant or mushroom on how to know it in the future it does give you a place to start looking to find the answer. So if you're collecting for knowledge, if you're collecting for learning, you literally are maybe collecting one, one plant, one specimen, and not a whole bunch because you don't know what it is yet. So take that one specimen and you can look at the structures, comparing it to an online guide or comparing it to a book you have at home. And it's in person and you can and look for different things that you might not have captured on a photo. For mushrooms, it is literally the way you identify mushrooms you take a specimen back and you do a spore print that you usually have to wait overnight for at least. And so if you're out learning and, and curious and you do take a specimen, it's okay for learning. Once you learn what it is, you'll know if you wanna go back and harvest the whole backpack full. Um, and then again, you'd,
1: you'd bring in your foraging ethics to play there. So
3: take something to learn from and that's okay.
1: Now I have to ask, the squirrels are going crazy right now with the acorns. What? Okay. I can easily identify an acorn. What do you do with it? What are, what are some tips on, on how to utilize the acorn?
3: Perfect. So um, acorns are traditionally around the world where oak trees are found a huge food source, a a traditional food source. Um, But we have to process them. At least here in North America, we have to process them in a particular way to make them edible. Otherwise it's very damaging to your liver and internal organs. Um, Now, if you just go pick up an acorn and eat it, you're gonna be fine. Um, But if you're eating any quantity of acorns, you have to remove the tannins. Um, So oak trees are split into two different groups, the white oak group and the red oak group. And their acorns have um, different characteristics based on those two groups. Some are better for um, storage, some are or easier to remove the tannins a certain way, um, but on both of them, you have to dry them, get the nut meat out of the middle, so have some way to crack them open, um, and then that nut meat has to be um, either hot processed or cold leached process um, to remove the tannins. And those tannins, we we eat tannins all the time if you drink coffee or tea or there's lots of foods that have tannins, but the tannin content of, of acorns are such that it can actually be too much for your, your systems to handle over an extended amount of time. And so um, you boil them through several changes of water, cold bleach them, you can either keep the nut meats whole or grind them up and um, pour cold water like run them under the sink. Um, a certain amount of time until those tannins are removed. They are water soluble. And so the starches and the oils and protein and stuff are left behind, but the tannins have been taken out. And then once you're done removing the tannins, whatever process you use, um, you can grind it up into acorn flour. You can include them into like, um, any way you'd use like a pecan or something like a acorn pie or something like that. But you do have to, no matter what species you're collecting, have to remove those tannins
1: so it turns out tannins are uh, found in other things than just wine you always hear reference to wine so that's good to know thanks chelsea i just the squirrels are going crazy right now and i'm like what can i do with those can i can i fight them off but again i don't want to harvest it i don't have a use for them
3: and you do have to kind of watch for you know acorn weevils um those types of things so a good way to test if your acorns are good would be like a float test So if they have any kind of infestation or um, acorn weevils have eaten all the good stuff out of it, those are going to float to the top and the good ones are going to sink because they're, you know, nice and heavy with that nut meat inside. Also just kind of give them a quick look over like if there's any sort of discoloration or anything like that. So you want to dry and store good, good quality food just like you would any produce from the store.
2: All right, Chels. So Rachel mentioned wine, which got me thinking. What is the most non-traditional thing you've made with your forage finds? This spring you talked to us and um, you kind of mentioned you're uh, getting into some wild forage cocktails. So is there anything like that that you're
3: excited to make this fall? probably the most different thing that I could recommend right now that is pretty easy for somebody else to try. Yes, absolutely. The the wild cocktails are are fun. Making cordials are part of that. So it's kind of like a a quick soda, like lightly fermented overnight or over a couple of days, kind of a, a very sparkly fun drink out of pretty much anything. Since we're moving into fall and it is mushroom time, I would say probably mushroom ketchup would be the interesting fall outside of the norm food. Uh, so it's actually uh, a very common condiment from the 18th, 17th, 18th century before, I mean, people used to think tomatoes were poisonous because they are in the nightshade family. And so the ketchup that we know today was uh, is fairly recent. And so um, if you look back through it, historical cookbooks, a lot of references are to Um, a sauce or your ketchup, but it's made from mushrooms. And it's sort of like maybe like an A1 type sauce would be a good way to compare it. But you get two products if you're making mushroom ketchup. So I do have a recipe here. It involves mushrooms, salt, uh, bay leaves, lemon. And I can I can get that to you guys if you have a place you want to post it um, and some spices. And you basically would just mash up the mushrooms and let the, the salt pull out a lot of those liquids. And then you'd put it in a pot and cook it and bring it to a boil for like 15 minutes and then strain it out. And that juice that's left is sort of like your, or if you, um kind of like a, a sauce on top of things, kind of also if you were to put like vinegar on top of fish or uh, french fries, kind of a thing, malt vinegar, those mushrooms and all those herbs and stuff that you strained out, you take those and you dry it um, and you grind it up like in a spice grinder. And now you have mushroom seasoned to salt. So it's kind of like a wild Lori's seasoned salt seasoning. Um, so you get two products from that, but yeah, it's a, it's a very traditional, uh, if you know, go back 200 years, condiment, but now almost unheard of.
0: And this mushroom ketchup has to be healthier than today's basic ketchup that we have that's loaded with oh, cups and cups of sugar. Like I, it just, it doesn't have the, this mushroom ketchup probably doesn't have the preservatives and it just has to be so much better, healthier for your body too.
3: On any wild foraged food, mushrooms, nuts, berries, greens, the nutrition levels are being studied comparing to what we call quote, quote, healthy modern foods or domesticated foods. So like greens are often compared to spinach and On any study that's been conducted, any analysis that's been done, wild foods are off the chart more nutritious than any healthy even, you know, organic best of the best domesticated foods um, because they're retaining all of the things that make them good. They haven't been altered or selectively bred to match a type like those red tomatoes that are perfectly round versus even like we find that in heirloom tomatoes out of the garden, they're gonna taste so much better than the, the supermarket ones because they're retaining more of those nutrients. But yeah, it doesn't have, the mushroom ketchup doesn't have the sugars. And if you wanna even increase uh, a trick with mushrooms, if you wanna increase the, uh, the nutrition, uh, especially the vitamin D, just set them out in the sun like for a day before you cook with them or before you eat them um, because they'll convert and, and store that vitamin D from the sun in their tissues. So yeah, you can, they're amazing, just picked and eaten right away, cooked and eaten, done and you have even more nutrition.
0: Who knew? I mean, just those simple little things that we could be doing to add so much more nutrition in our life. I'm excited and hopefully Chelsea's willing to share these recipes with us, to share with everyone, but I have to know, I'm hoping you will share with us some of your favorite recipes in addition to mushroom ketchup.
3: Absolutely. Um, so, like I said, fall, we've got bark, we've got mushrooms, we've got some of our fall fruits. Uh, but I would happily share the shag bark hickory soda. Very easy. It's basically making a tea from the cleaned um, and roasted bark, adding sugar, adding sparkling water. And you can do that with almost anything to get that flavor extract. I don't, I have to go down a little bit further south to a uh, to get some shag bark, but I know most most of the Midwest will have them and you don't need very much to, to do that. And whatever you're left with, you throw in the smoker when you're roasting your deer steak or whatever, like that. Puffball, just super easy uh puffball pieces. I had a class and there was kids attending, and I thought for sure that they were going to be after like the sweets, the ice cream or the syrups and stuff like that, the jams and jellies. I could not keep the plate of puffball piece, little fried nuggets full they were just chowing them down and it's super easy it's basically your flour egg wash and then you put a parmesan crust on the pieces of puffball, fry it up and it's like a mozzarella stick slash chicken nugget absolutely delicious and you know you fry anything and it's going to be good so it's a good way to um get people to try if they say they don't like puffball mushroom because it does have a, a flavor um or if they're just really weirded out by trying a mushroom you found in the woods. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty easy segue into trying some wild things. Mushroom chowders, uh, it's it's getting into soup season. So anything slow and, and low and slow in the crock pot is, is delicious. Simple mushroom chowders. And it, when I make them, I'm lactose intolerant. And so I actually take the puffball and dry it and powder it. And that makes a really nice kind of like creamy sauce or creamy aspect to certain dishes that um, isn't using dairy. That's kind of a, a fun one. And I also have but yeah, pairing anything with some wild game would be awesome. I've got some conifer cookies. So even as we move further into fall and winter, even there are things to harvest and I've got cookies you can make from, from pine trees.
0: Uh, we're going to have to bring her back this winter and have this conversation again, like seasonal. I'm feeling it exactly. seasonally. ladies. Yeah.
2: We need like a webinar where we're just do like a cooking show with Chelsea. Chelsea, are you down for that?
3: Absolutely. Yes. Yes.
0: The heck with webinar. We're going to her house and she's cooking for us. Deal. (laughs) Been been
2: voluntold. (laughs) Well, Chelsea, uh, tis the season for spook. (laughs) We are excited to transition into fall, into October, the spooky season. So I'm curious while you've been out in the woods um, or, you know, just in the wild places foraging, has anything spooky
3: ever happened to you on your foraging trips? Um so not Halloween is my holiday. I am not a christmas person. My family knows this so much so that after we got married, um you know, people always play pranks on you. Um instead of, you know, short sheeting the bed or doing something covering the toilet seat or taking the labels off cans my family decided to cover our entire house with Christmas decorations because they knew it would make me mad. So that was, you know, I I am a Halloween girl. Uh, So it is my holiday. And so I am all about the spooky season. Uh, I can't say there's ever been anything particularly spooky that's happened or I've seen. Um, But there is a really cool mushroom that grows this time of year. It's called Dead Man's Fingers. And it literally looks like zombie fingers, like coming up out of the ground. So every time I see that, I'm like, oh, hey there. You know, and um, sometimes it'll grow like, it'll just grow in your yard or even it's really particularly great if it grows like in a cemetery or something. Not necessarily scary or spooky, but a fun Halloween-ish, late fall season type surprise in the woods.
0: And Can I eat a dead man's fingers? No. Uh,
3: (laughs) they just look cool okay and that they're they're kind of hard and crunchy so
2: as would be expected with dead man dead man's fingers well that's really cool chelsea i hope to see some of those this year i've seen pictures of them and they definitely fall in the spook category if you ask me so very cool Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. So kind of to recap a little bit, eating it sounds like is maybe one of the last questions you ask on whether or not something's edible. There's a lot of preparation and work and knowledge that goes into going out in the outdoors and starting this foraging journey. And one of those that we always like to talk about is safety. So safety goes beyond just being able to identify those items that you're foraging um, it's also safety in terms of letting someone know where you're going and when you plan to return and also check in the area to make sure that it's an area that you can be in safely and legally. And of course, this time of year, especially please, please, please be aware of um, the hunting seasons that are going on in particular, we do have you know we'll have firearm seasons opening up this fall and winter, um, we've got muzzleloader season going on right now, at least in Kansas so. Please be careful if you're going out into the woods into an area that is a shared space with hunters and um, consider wearing that blaze orange you're not going to scare off any mushrooms if they see you come in <laughs> or any acorns and it's going to keep you safe out there. Um, also, be sure to check your regulations too to make sure that the area you're utilizing is an area in which you can forage. Some of our areas are set aside specifically for hunting, and they can be seasonal as well, so make sure to check on that. And if you are going to go out there and hunt, just remember that there's a lot of different activities you can do if the deer aren't coming by or the squirrels aren't seeming to be active. So um, keep that all in mind. Always bring food and water, especially, especially water. Start small, consult an expert, and of course be ethical. So Chelsea reminded us of that like 30% or that one-third rule, you know, take one-third for yourself, leave a third for wildlife, and then leave a third for reproduction. I love that. So Chelsea, do you have any last minute advice or words of encouragement for our listeners who are hoping to get out foraging this year? And can we
3: get into your classes? Yeah, so I would say just, again, keeping in mind the ethics. I know we are people that are celebrating the fact that we can, we have the opportunity, we have the uh, ability to have wild spaces to go and enjoy and natural resources that we can participate in and and, uh, partake of. Just like with hunting, if you're not going to use something, don't harvest it, or only harvest how much you know you and your family would be able to consume or, you know, how much you may need as in a storage situation. Like, oh, I want to make sure I can have um, autumn olive jelly once a month through the winter time. So how much would you need? Because it does leave, again, fruits and, and greens and mushrooms for other foragers as well as maintaining the viability of that plant or mushroom species um, just in the ecosystem. And uh, be thankful for the things that mother nature gives us. I have often found that if I'm like, I want to go and and Rachel, we found this out on the webinars that I did this spring. If I want to go and talk about a morale, not even harvest it for myself. Um, and I'm going in the, the woods with the intention of taking a, I'm probably not going to find what I'm looking for. But if I go and I'm doing some other activity, like I'm hunting or I'm fishing or just going for a walk, then all of a sudden there's food aplenty. And so just walking with a grateful heart and being thankful for all of the beauty and things that we are able to participate and partake of in our wild spaces is just really pretty special because that doesn't happen doesn't happen everywhere it doesn't happen even everywhere in the United States so yeah just come to a class if you can I have I will post on our Facebook page so Mitchell County Conservation Board on the classes that I'm hosting through through my work Um, also check out some of your local Facebook groups so in every state it seems like there has been or is, is starting to be um, Facebook groups that are dedicated to foraging and collecting things from the wild. Iowa has several. I know there's a couple, Kansas, Nebraska as well. And there are general Midwest groups you can be a part of also. Um, so the Midwest Wild Edible and Foragers Society is one. Uh, check out some YouTube. Channels. There are a couple that I really like. So, uh, Learn Your Land is a great one, based out of the Northeast, but a lot of that information transfers, um, particularly on mushrooms. He uh, focuses on Forager's Harvest is a, a business through Sam Thayer and Melissa Price. That Sam Thayer is the author of our Midwest kind of foraging Bibles. Um, So Foragers Harvest, Nature's Garden, and Incredible Wild Edibles. There's some good books and resources. And Backyard Foraging has a blog that posts a lot of stuff about Ellen is amazing. And uh, we'll have weekly or or monthly newsletters on what what she's out foraging and some ideas to do with that. I could go on and on and I can get you a, a full list of some recommendations. But um, yeah, checking Facebook pages um, for classes. And also I've been working with Rachel through the Iowa DNR to offer webinars and different series and events like, you know, becoming an outdoors woman. I will teach that too. So stay connected to these amazing ladies here and uh, find me on Facebook and we'll we'll get you in a class somewhere.
1: Well, I couldn't have summed it up better, Chelsea. With the season of fall, I kind of always think about being thankful and you kind of hit home that we are so lucky to have these resources and this the ability to harvest in in our backyard in our native woods and and land. So just taking that second to to truly do a little uh, I don't know self self perspective and and just really uh, taking that step and, and saying thanks. So thanks again for tuning in. Don't forget to like, share, or subscribe to the podcast. With that, you get alerts anytime a new episode is uploaded. Please leave a review and let us know what you love about the podcast and what you want to hear about. Uh, Check out our Facebook at She Goes Outdoors to stay in touch, share your photos, leave comments on the topics, and until next time, we'll see you outdoors.